Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkoff, and this is a new segment, The Book Club. Now, how this segment came to be? Well, I'm a first-time CEO with my company, Savage Game Studios, and I've been getting a lot of good help from Joachim Akran, who you guys better known as the founder of Elite Game Developers, uh, a blog, a podcast, and um, I have actually known Joachim for a good part of a decade uh, as a game founder here in, in Helsinki. Anyway, Joachim has been giving me lots of very good, very practical advice, whether it comes to setting up values, hiring, firing, giving feedback, holding effective leads meetings, in short, everything that comes for building a company culture. And lots of his frameworks for leadership have come from books. So I started reading the books that he suggested and immediately began understanding what I need to improve as of today, what has worked, what didn't work, and why in the companies that I worked at before. So I decided to take the same approach to internalizing my learning with leadership as I've done with learning games. And that's, of course, deconstructions and making those deconstructions public. Now, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I hope you learn and can take these learnings into your team, your studio, or your company. And um, if you wish to participate in the book club, hit me up on LinkedIn or on Deconstructor Fun Slack channel if you have been uh, approved for that. And as always, we do appreciate all feedback. So send it our way. And um, without further ado, a shout out to our fantastic sponsors, Facebook, Iron Source, and Apps Flyer. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do, do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. I think what's 
what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky, you your game is an instant hit, it's resonating with users, but for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. That was Melissa Zella, VP of Marketing at IronSource. Welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun Book Club. In this segment of the podcast, we discuss how the learnings from prominent leadership books can be applied in the gaming studios. My co-hosts are Sophie Vo. Voodoo Berlin's studio lead and the founder of Ryzen Play Masterclass. Welcome, Sophie. Yeah, hi. Hi, Miska. And of course, Joachim Akren, co-founder in gaming. One of the companies that you founded is Next Games that was IPO'd a few years ago. You're also an investor and a blogger of elite game developers. Welcome, Joachim. Hey, Miska. Thanks for asking me to join on this one. And also, I have to say, Joachim is is in a way like you're in a way my mentor. Am I? Could, could I say that way? <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps. Let's let's see Perhaps how this uh, podcast goes, and we'll yeah. determine on that. <laughs> Maybe I'll choose <laughs> Sophie to be my mentor after this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I try to help as much as I can. And um and yes, myself, Michigan Gatkov, CEO of Savage Game Studios, and uh, founder of this little community called Deconstructor of Fun. But today we're going to talk about our first book, and this book is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's a leadership fable by Patrick Lencioni. The book tells a story of a tech company that has an amazing funding. They build this all-star executive team, and the book starts with them just being unable to reach the potential. They're unable to compete against their rivals with less money and on paper, worse executives and worse people and worse technology. So as the book starts, the founder CEO is being demoted to a chief business officer, and there's a new CEO stepping in. And this new CEO, CEO is um, a seasoned lady from outside tech, and she's being brought in by the president of the board. And the, the way the book is told is it takes the, the, the perspective of this lady who's joining as a CEO, as she observes the behavior of the executive team and then starts forming them into an actual team instead of a bunch of all-stars. And the book answers many essential questions about teamworks and, and the kind of three prominent are, why is it so important to focus on teamwork even if the team already has many great individuals? Number two is, why is, why is trust crucial and why does it require team members to share weaknesses and mistakes openly? And number three, how can team members be encouraged to focus on team results rather than the individual goals? So in this podcast, we're going to go through all the, uh, the kind of key points and discuss them more from, uh, from the perspective of the, of, the, uh, of the game studio. But um, Sophie, what do you think about this book as a whole, like in, in the beginning? Like what I personally liked it, is it was an audiobook for like three and a half, three and a half hour listen. It was like a, a longish podcast. So fantastic listen. Yeah. So it's been a while since I read this book, uh, two years ago. 
And it's still a reference I go back to, actually, because I love, actually, one uh, in the book, there's a pyramid and the different stages of uh, what brings a team to have context, accountability. And I even share, actually, it with my team members, the people I, I grow as leaders in my team, because uh, for the things you said, it, it's short. I think there's a great st uh, storytelling part. So you get the concept of why it's important through a story. And I think what, that's what makes this book very strong, powerful is, you know, it's very straightforward. Mm -hmm. All right, Joachim, any, any kind of like first thoughts before we start diving into the key points? Yeah, so Lencion is like a, it's basically a management consultant who used to work for McKinsey and he left McKinsey because he felt that that wasn't the right way to actually like help management and leadership. And he, he created his own sort of approach which talks more about this trust building and all these these ways that the teams actually aren't working, that there's there's not basically an organic way of creating good teams, but you need to think about like what is the, the sort of the human approach of dealing dealing with uh, with the dysfunctions that that Lencioni talks about in this book. So he has he's written like 15 books or something like that a lot and just recently came out this the motive his latest book which i'm just starting to read uh so i i really like his approach and it's for the game industry it is sort of like an unconventional way of viewing things i think in gaming we've always been this kind of like craftsmanship uh, approach mm -hmm. and uh and now that more more power is coming to these small teams like independent teams i think it's the most crucial stage that teams start looking into the best ways to build build foundations and build trust into their ways of working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's dive in. Point number one, teamwork is the ultimate competitive advantage. As a leader, you need to make it your top priority. So in the book, this point is is brought forward by, by this the startup, which once had a very promising start, but has now a very bleak future. They have hard time finding new customers compared to the competition. And the root cause of all of this is the lack of teamwork among the leadership. The, all the leads are ambitious and highly successful. Nevertheless, they have egos that hinder the teamwork. And what ends up happening is they're competing against each other, even though they have their own different swim lanes. So as the new CEO comes in, and in this book, they they have this reaction, like, like a typical American reaction, like inside a week, they're like, oh, she doesn't know shit because she hasn't made any changes. <laughs> and she just chooses to actually just observe uh, versus like taking actions right away. And she's honestly observing for two weeks, but in, inside that two weeks, they're already like, she doesn't know shit. <laughs> anyway, so the CEO comes in and she focuses purely on teamwork versus financial targets. And I think the key points that this this the key points here is that the um, the great teams amount to more than the sum of their individuals. And in this book, she uses actually sports team as as an analogy. And a sports team, I love that analogy way more than family. I, I hate when 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 everything is called family. Anyway, sports team, a great example where a team with no superstars can beat a team filled with them. So absence of teamwork leads into Politics, politics lead to low morale, low morale leads to less focus on performance, and that leads to loss of valuable people. So regarding this first point, do game companies in general 
invest into team building in your opinion? Sophie, let's, let's start with you. Yeah, so I'll comment here more on my experience um, without focusing too much, of course, on, on uh, specific companies. Um, but in a bigger picture, uh, companies, uh, whether they're in mature stage or startup uh, stage, um, it always uh, gears toward uh, profitability, financial success. And uh, in that thinking, when you are starting and you have to prove, I don't know, make the financials for the year, um, the team investment component uh, does, is, not, is not very clear in terms of ROI. So it's not very tangible. So for example, if I come as a, as a team lead and I say, I'd like to invest in my team because of X, Y, Z, uh, I cannot sell it uh, the same way that if I invest in the game, spending this feature, this budget, marketing, it will have immediate return that I can measure. So I think that's the main challenge where uh, when you have a leadership uh, in a company that focuses a lot on the financials and the short term. So what, what I mean by short term could be six months, like a quarter, usually as well, public companies, they look at financial performance every quarter. It's really hard to build this where you only see the impact of this really in the long term, like after a year. It takes also a year to build a very solid team, for example, and the result will be seen more in the product and the financials of the product you build, but it's not something you can prove uh, at the beginning. So I would say the challenge of that and why it's uh, put on the side, if uh, leaders of a company don't believe in the, let's say, return, although they don't have a proof of it, it is very hard to establish it inside the company. So it's related to the culture and leadership. What do you think, Joachim? Yeah, so like in gaming, I think it's it's not the default to... Well, thinking about investing in people has, I think, in gaming always been this, hey, who can go to GDC this year? We need to sort of like do a raffle where we pick who's going <laughs> to go to GDC and that's the way we invest in people or then we bring somebody to talk at the company. I think those are fine. Uh, but like I sort of like realized that like, Understanding what's going on in gaming by reading all the Rap Coster books, uh, Jesse Sells books, and things like that is it's kind of limiting. I, I like that was like four or five years ago when I started sort of venturing into nonfiction outside of gaming to to kind of build more knowledge base. Uh, it just felt like hey, there's so much to learn from tech entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley. Uh, I went into this rabbit hole of reading everything related to startups. And and I think like I didn't have a term for it back then, but like the term growth mindset, I think came up three, three years ago for me, uh, where, where I started understanding that there's actually something that, you know, the leadership either is setting an example for a growth mindset or they have a fixed mindset as a default, which means that they aren't. Uh, thinking about like ways to actually elevate and invest into their teams. So I think it really depends on the team leads and their own growth mindset so that the team itself, if they're going to be conforming to their leader and they're going to look up to what their leader sort of sets as priorities. And if they, the leader isn't putting these growth activities at the top, I think there, there it can start faltering. Uh, so, like, best advice for leaders, I think, is to, to focus on 
doing this kind of like one-on-one activities where you sort of like activate the growth mindset of people and then moving moving on to deep teams I, I think it's gonna hurt the short term because like you're, you're rushing for a game or something versus spending time on building like strength in the team i you know in my experience this is this is the, the the fact is gaming companies do not invest into teams like if i you know considering like i've i've been in games now for for dozen years i've never had a leader that that was there you know wanting to like you know when i was working in a team i never had somebody who was all about hey let's build a team like we're building a team first like what sophie is doing right now i've never had that type of experience so of course you learn by being in this industry so i never had a person who was shown showing the ropes in terms of how to build a team. I have always leaders who were showing me the ropes in terms of how to make a game. It was all about how fast you can get make a game. What are the different processes you're using for game? Whether you go for marketability first, whether you go for you know quick prototyping this and that and this and team composures and outsourcing and insourcing and and this type of a starting composure versus that type of source. Like this is all that I learned move fast, prove something that is wrong, you know, get a demo and people said, nobody ever talked about building a team. And, and uh, I think, um, I think like for me, the switch happened quite recently, to be honest, but, um, but especially when raising, uh, when raising for VCs, because when you go to the VC route, they don't give up. Well, most of them don't give a shit about your game idea or your your product position like that is like i don't mean don't give a shit but that's secondary the first thing a vc asks is like tell me about your team and you're like well you know let me tell you how i'm gonna build this it's like no, no 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 tell me about the team like i'm investing into the team i'm not investing into this like project is secondary i understand this is your first project it's most likely gonna fail we have about you know 25 to 30 investments they all you know out of them 34 failed with their first game so you tell me who's your in your team and that is kind of like a big switch that that is to me really surprising because inside big studios, they don't give a shit. They just gather people. What's your what's your resume? What do you know? Do you know, you know, too much ZBrush, low poly? Oh, we want a low poly artist come over here. Like this fits our project. Like you just get heads, you get to put them together, but the team only formulates almost by an accident, almost like by, by the, by the people working together, finding their groove, failing together. And, um, and through that kind of like, uh, becoming a team by an accident versus by the fact that the company is growing them. So. Yeah, definitely. All right. So I think, I think we're there, but, but you guys think the company should invest more into team building? Like, should it be like when you become a game lead, for example, like should should the studio or somebody take you like, hey, great, here are a couple of books that you should read. By the way, I've only gotten one's books, but even those weren't about team leadership, but you'd be like, here's a couple of books. You can do audiobooks as well. One of them could be five dysfunctions of a team. And let me coach you to be now a team lead also instead of a product lead. I think it is changing uh, gradually. I think it's it's also a generational shift uh, where we get people who weren't sort of like in that console PC world of developing premium games that now we're more more like you know rapid development is sort of like a focus area. I think there's there's a generational shift there where people will be you know looking for new ways into creating value inside the company. Um, so yeah, it's gonna take time, but. Maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Sophie is definitely one of those people who are, who are who you've been investing into team building first. And I know that like we worked in the same place and then you work now in a different place. But I know from the side that people were always skeptical with your approach of investing into the team versus focusing 100% on the game. So, yeah, I, I can uh, like compliment you that is really how how far you look in uh, your journey of game development. So when, if you're overconfident that your first trial, so you put everything, all your chips on it, mm-hmm. will succeed, then of course team is not so important because you invest everything on the product. But the reality, we know it, is like the uh, rate of failure is very high. So what you want is that uh, you can um, create a system that can go through several trials and that you don't have to uh disband the team reconstruct the team it takes time so it's a very inefficient approach as well but you can argue as well with the leadership it just takes time and money to be on the team each time you have a startup or studio that disappear because the first product didn't work what you're trying to build is basically a system that can sustain several products that will be tried and it doesn't matter if it's the first one and for that the team it's also you know, um, a flywheel like effect over time, the team gets better, they uh, get trained to launch, kill games, and you invest, you know, in the same direction and not reinvest in new direction and so mm-hmm. on. So it's, if you look at the time window, actually, it makes more sense. But if you look at your first game, six months, yeah, you shouldn't invest. So yeah. that's really, are you there for the long-term game? Uh, right, Joachim? You know about this one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, uh, all right, let's move on to the, uh, to the next point. There's a lot of good points here. So I wanted to cover them relatively fast. <laughs> um, well, not relatively fast, but in a good time. Um, the second point in this book was that all teamwork is based on trust and trust is built when team members are open about their weaknesses and mistakes. So the key points in this book were that trust and respect are the foundation of any relationship because trust leads to healthy communication in team, and then that leads to finding the best solutions more quickly. And trust is built when team members openly share their shortcomings, weaknesses, and mistakes, because that gives a full picture of the peers to each, uh, of, of each other peers. And that it's important that the leader starts first when sharing weaknesses. And that it's also important that true weaknesses are shared among the teams. So in the book, um, they have a situation where the head of sales is leaving. And at that point, the head of customer support offers to take the role. Uh, you know, I can, I can do this, intermediate head of sales. And the rest of the team actually counters it because at this point, they've, they've built a little bit of a trust. And they are able to counter it by communicating very f- freely and without fear of voicing their opinion. And because the head of customer support actually trusts them, um, he listens to their opinion and another person is chosen to be the interim head of sales. And also regarding the leader sharing first their weaknesses and, and being true of the weaknesses that you share, they have a good example where, where the uh, leadership team is on the offside and um, they, you know, the CEO starts sharing about her weakness and she's, uh, she's very real with the weakness that she shares. I kind of forgot which one was it. Uh, was it the one where she got fired or, or, or another point? Like, you know, very, very real type of weakness. And then it goes through the team and and it stops at uh, at their head of marketing. And, and she basically shares the type of a weakness that uh, that <laughs> that uh, that people share in a bad interview. Like, oh, I'm, 
you know, I'm, I'm very peculiar about the details, like, like that kind of a bullshit, like a weakness that is a strength and, and that kind of brings the whole mood down. So, so the, the point there is to, to really be open about what is your weakness and show the way so that others are, are open about their weaknesses as well. And through that, you're able to build the trust by, by actually showing, yeah, showing the cracks in your armor. So a question for you, to you guys, how do you build the trust inside a game company or a studio? Like with this type of approach where you have an offside and, tr- and tell weaknesses or like, like what's the best way in your opinion for this type of a trust building? Sophie? Yeah, I'll start. Um, yeah, so I would say for trust, uh, I wish there would be a way to engineer it, but um, you know, it's human interaction. So it's just not possible. So it just takes uh, time and experience. Um, but in the context that you are building companies uh, like startup, like like the two of us as well with uh, Miska, uh, I think the fastest way and most efficient way is to build something quick together, ship it, and uh, re- for the sake of learning. So I mentioned that before. Maybe you uh, you know that your first product is likely to fail, so it's better to train on something that is a low stake and uh, work together around it. And why it supports the trust because you will do something super ambitious. So let's say, let's ship a game in, uh, I don't know, a few weeks, put it out on the store and that's something viable. We look at retention and let's see if we can launch it, you know, like with uh, all the hopes. Of course, it's very ambitious and unrealistic, but what happens is with the constraints, the team is forced to uh, find solutions. So there will be disagreements, a lot of debates, um, a lot of discussions where these conflicts will create the trust. So that's one thing. And uh, also through this experience, when uh, let's say after you launch something, it's not great as uh, expected, you look a lot um, into what went wrong. So as a team, we observe, we deconstruct all the things we did wrong. And this is part of, a, I would say, of a way of being that becomes just a norm. So talking about the mistakes as a group, talking about the thing that went wrong, what we, can we do better? It becomes more natural as well when individuals talk about the mistakes. So that's what also can create an environment to also uh, be more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I would add at last, I think um, you mentioned it as well, like as the example of the book, uh, the, the leader really creates the culture in the team. So. If you want to create um, a culture where people feel safe and uh, like show vulnerability, you have to uh, walk the talk as a leader and sharing real mistakes. Like where, you know, we in our position, there are a lot of things we do. We make a lot of decisions every day. Uh, we are under a lot of stress, so we have many mistakes that are happening. But how often are we talking about it without the fear of looking incompetent or not deserving this role and position? And I think uh, with leaders practicing this to the group, this is where it opens up as well. The fact that, okay, we don't have a superhuman as a leader, we just have you know, a human and we are just here with different roles and responsibility and we'll make mistakes and we'll make wins sometimes. And that's how it is. Mm. Yeah, I, I really like the, the whole vulnerability uh, aspect. If if you are a leader and you come out you know, publicly about mistakes or failure or some activity that happened and you talk about what you learned, I think it 
it shows this kind of courage, but it also shows that this is the way that we want to operate as a business, as, as a company. Like I've seen some CEOs post on social media, like a, a blog post like you did, Sophie, recently with your uh, learnings from last year, all the mistakes that happened with your studio. Um, that that really highlights like this person is really coming from a place of good and trying to learn to improve themselves. And that's a big strength. Uh, and it really resonates whenever that happens. I think like, if you go for a group exercise of building trust, I think the, the best case is there in, in gaming is, is to build build a game together and kill a game together. <laughs> like, uh, it's, a, it's a failure, which is a shared experience where if, if you are clear about like, why you're doing things, if you're clearly doing it, when everybody gets a say, the trust just builds up over time. Uh, and then I, I want to talk about the safe environment thing, which comes up often as well. It's it's kind of like uh, hard to build up without being vulnerable. This kind of like place where you feel that you can actually say your mind without feeling that you'll get punished because you're talking about uh, certain things in your team. I think the, the job really is often in gaming that there's a lot of hard things happening, like games are getting killed left and right. And you need to also make the decision that this is not just you know commercially viable that the game co goes out. And if you, together with the team, sort of have an understanding that what are we taking away from this? I think it's like it's a strength that, that builds trust in the whole team. Yeah, this uh, this was a <clears throat> an interesting part as well. Like the, the whole trust building, I get it one hundred percent. Again, never really had that type of an experience. If I don't, you know, consider like an officer school, uh, but that was like back in the days. Uh, but um, I've never never had that in in um, in gaming. And Joachim, you said the right thing about the um, the safe spaces. Like quite often, I felt I feel personally that that gaming studios, especially large ones, are extremely competitive. And that is almost almost leads to that uh, lack of lack of these you know safe places and lack of opportunity to really talk about your weaknesses because you can't. It's all about strength. It's all about who's moving forward, who's getting the resources. Your game gets killed. Guess where your guys are going to another game team? Like there's scarce resources. You need to be pushing forward. You need to be hustling. You need to be you know keeping keeping your resources close to your mind so so this is i think this the, the fact that that the writer writes about the leader doing that first is crucial because if you're a game lead and you start showing your weaknesses and your studio lead doesn't show it and the ceo doesn't show it and they have they come from a different culture guess what you read the wrong book because <laughs> you're gonna be you're gonna be you're gonna be you know kicked out so it's not about like it, it's it's kind of a hard part where where if you're in the middle you can't start doing this like this has to come from the top yeah no yeah so in that sense in the game studios where you guys talk about you know make together fail together start with something small and, and build your your groove through that and kind of gel in through the hardships of, of building games i think that's that's probably the the the, the most practical approach uh, but i hope that that some of the leaders would actually follow this approach would which take us 
you know, through the trust building and the safe spaces. But um, but definitely a, a very, very interesting part and something that the teams could could um, could do together uh, in this trust building. Yeah. Um, all right, point number three, constructive conflicts lead to better decisions. So the key points made in the book are the decisions making, the decision-making benefits from clashing perspectives. That, that, that means that open and free debates on the merits and faults of every idea lead to better outcomes. When you have constructive conflicts, there's no intra-team politics or even agendas and trust leads to nothing is being said or interpreted as destructive. So in this book, Catherine, who is the CEO, uh, she's coming to these meetings and for the first couple of weeks, she's basically just sitting and, and trying to understand how things are going. And she finds that there's no conflict. Like everybody has their swim lanes. They update what they're doing. Everybody's on their phones or on their computers and kind of not really listening. You've, you guys have been in all of these meetings <laughs> and nobody is really um, pushing against anybody else because it's their swim lane. They got it. They, you know, they're doing their thing. And, um, and what she points out, it's not that, People are not interested in what everybody else is doing. It's because they don't, they don't have the trust. And because they don't have the trust, they're unable to discuss difficult topics. So they haven't gelled together. So they just keep things to themselves and kind of push their own agenda. And everybody's pushing their own agenda. And the CEO, who was the, the person before, was basically just having the, these like well-timed meetings. All right, hour is in, we've had our updates. Let's go and, you know, kick some butts. And that's, that's kind of, so that was the, that was the stuff. So my question here is how to make sure that conflicts stay constructive. So Joachim, we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I think this is, this is again, an area of like, I, I think the whole book, the five dysfunctions, you got to think about the dis five dysfunctions in a way that if you don't have trust, you're not going to have conflict. If, if you don't have conflict, you won't have the second dysfunction that he lists. So it's, it's sort of like a, a cascading thing. So like when you have the trust in place, when you have that safe environment where people can get into discussions with each other about different opinions, uh, I think it's, it's kind of a discussion where that will be the best for the game that they're working on. But it, like one of the things that kind of reminds me about like healthy conflict versus unhealthy is like if people are approaching the conflict from a place where they're not explaining the reasoning behind their opinions, uh, they're sort of keeping that to themselves. So I, I think reasoning is always a, like a, a superpower that everybody should also develop when they're entering healthy conflict uh, is, is to, you know, build up that reasoning engine. Like you can't really say that, Hey, that's the, that's the way that we've always done things. Like the saying often goes in gaming. Um, so like build off on the reasoning. Why do we have to create games the way that we do the way that we always did them? Like, and, I think that's more of a happy discussion versus like who has the, you know, the most experience in gaming versus like somebody who just entered gaming recently, but has really like good opinions uh, versus to somebody who's a veteran in gaming. So I think like to, to have these kind of healthy conflicts, it's again about the leader shedding, sharing this kind of like code of 
contact with the team. And one of those things is actually like, here's, here's how we, we're going to face healthy conflict. And like that it, it is the most constructive as possible. Sophie? Yeah, so to um, uh, continue on what uh, Joachim just said, uh, trust, I would say, is just the foundation to have healthy conflicts. And that's also what the book supports. And I would add to that, uh, trust in the group that we are here with the same goals. So when we are solution-oriented as a group, we trust in a way each other that we care about the mission, why we're here, and why it's important to debate on this topic. So, uh, for example, the type of unhealthy conflict that can happen is like when you start to suspect it's an ego conflict. So you have people trying to be right in the discussion or prove their point instead of focusing on solution, like what is the problem we're trying to solve here as a group, although we may have different opinion. So I think it's one of the foundations to enter a conflict. And something that I have practiced in uh, my studio with the team handbook, uh, I share that in my masterclass um, and basically listing uh, really all the behavior desired in OCU, how we approach conflicts. And some example of how we do this is uh, usually we would never have conflicts in written form. So asynchronously in a Slack, so we have a room, it's basically when you start to write a, a wall of five lines in Slack, you, you move it in a, a, a synchronous uh, discussion, like just, so when I even start to see it, you know, team channels like, hey guys, please just talk because this is like, and you see bouncing and people, it starts to escalate, like just talk first. So that's one of the rules. Um, and uh, some conflicts that I can sometimes moderate and host. So as a lead, actually, you have a, a lot of power to help on these conflicts where you can be not in the conflicts, but moderate the talks. So, okay, this is a meeting or discussion where we are focusing on this problem. So setting the stage, basically, what are, why are we here? And uh, making sure that, uh, you know, um, people are behaving in a way that doesn't start to escalate. So everybody has a say. This is a problem we're trying to solve here. Round table, everyone has three minutes to talk with no interruption. So everybody can hear each other. And we don't have a dominant personality that starts to talk and offer solutions and etc. when the rest, you know, doesn't speak up. So this is a way to make sure that everyone expresses uh, their point of view in a way as well. So these are the kind of things uh, we implement and now is a practice. And certain uh, type of behavior where I'm, uh, I'm holding then the culture in the way we talk to each other, but no blame. Like this is, when I spot this is like, what do you mean by that? So an example of a blame is like, uh, you did wrong or uh, you were lazy. <laughs> that is like starting to basically point someone and uh, use an adjective about them. And I'd rather encourage people to say, what is your problem? What is uh, the action that has happened that affected you and your work? It's like, okay, when I didn't have that information as a person, that prevented me from... Uh, being efficient in my work to uh, have a clear target of what I'm doing. So then you create the situation when the other party, instead of being targeted, understand like the, how the action can impact the work of the other. That's also how you can solve conflict. So using more empathic communication instead of you did this, you are wrong, you know, and uh, you have to change. And this will never go well. Even if you have trust in the team, I can tell you, attack is a never a good strategy of having a, a healthy conflict. 
I, I think you raised a very important point and that is facilitating the conflict. As a lead, you can't be, you know, spearheading the conflict. You have to be there. Like, like in this book, actually, the CEO facilitates the conflict. She creates an area where everybody is comfortable in, con- in creating conflict and in really raising their opinions and, and having a discussion about hard topics. But she's not the one who is starting the conflict because she's above everybody else in the rank and that, w- that wouldn't work. So that's important to remember as a lead. And um, I'll, I'll give an example of a, of a conflict facilitation that did not work. So, so in a company, uh, there was a leadership that I was part of and uh, we, our leader was, um, you know, he wanted, he wanted everybody to kind of tell risky things about games that they have in productions and kind of like be basically uh, look at your own stuff, but from a very kind of like a skeptical way. So instead of you always defending yours, try to 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 find critical things. And this was done in the Leeds team. And while this might be a good idea to be critical towards what you are doing or what is being done in your teams, uh, there was no really sort of an underlining and facilitation done for this work. And what it resulted is, is the people who were playing along with this, like, all right, let me, let me poke some holes in what I'm doing. <laughs> they ended up getting punished because they were honest or, you know, tried to, to play the game. And then those who were like, oh, okay, so we're playing this game. Well, let me fake everything and let me be just, you know, like fake bad things about what we're doing. Like, well, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, kind of turned it over. They, like nothing happened to them uh, and they were able to continue with their, with their projects despite the whole room knowing that they were full of shit, like that they totally ruined the whole exercise, but the lead did not actually bring it forward. Like, Hey, like, this is, come on, dude. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is like, you're, you're not, you're not, you know, being, being fair for this. So, so this kind of happened. And because there was no facilitations, no moderation, even a good idea can fell, can, can fall flat. So that's kind of like a, my, my, uh, my, you know, take from, from real life on, on this. Yeah. I think this is a skill. Uh, and it's like the organic way is it's, it's unhealthy conflict. It's never like <laughs> yeah. organically going to be healthy. Yeah. So it's it, yeah. it can be unhealthy, but, it, but actually like now that I'm looking back at those situations, that exercise came really fast uh, following that the new lead had joined the team. And the lead failed to bring to to build trust first. So here we talk about this pyramid. It's like you can't jump into the conflict stage mm. without first building the trust stage. So there yeah. wasn't trust. That's why people did not share. That's why you didn't get the real conflict. So it's kind of like um like a, a you know a step back here. Interesting. Like I by the way, I don't read a lot of books, and they, these are one of the first. <laughs> so Joachim actually suggested me a bunch of stuff. And he gave me some notes from a book. I'm like, damn, books work. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm more of a writer than a reader. Yeah. Anyway, good to hear. Good to, hear. <laughs> to the point four. So um, everybody has to be committed to a decision, even if there's no consensus. I love this point. Like I, 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 I hate everything about consensus. So this is this was actually very interesting to read. So the key points here were that the consensus is a very difficult to find in strong teams because people have different perspectives and they also have different opinions. And when you do, like if you push for consensus, it would only lead to watered down decisions. 
And as a worst case, you make a decision that everybody keeps second guessing. And in the end, nothing gets done or nothing gets done properly because it was a consensus decision. So in great teams, they know that any decision is better than no decision. They commit to a decision because if they don't, lack of commitment creates ambiguity and misalignment that will trickle down to employee level. So basically we're talking about Lee's team. And everyone has a chance to share opinion and be heard, which leads to people commit fully to a group decision, even if they argue passionately against it in the beginning. So how have you overcome the need for consensus in a team, Sophie? Yeah, so I would uh, join your point about I am, I am not uh, advocating for consensus at all, actually, in teams. I think there's a lot of value in uh, debating things before we make decisions. So uh, it's kind of a, a bit of a motto uh, in our team. It's like we would never make a decision without a fight. And I put a fight like in a more with humor here. It's like not we are not fighting, but sometimes we go in intense, really intense debates. And that's intimidating for newcomers. It's like, are you guys fighting? We're just very passionate about a topic we are debating on. But uh, that's also for the newcomers to understand the culture we're working in. Like we, we will not be afraid to speak up, to confront, to challenge each other before making a decision. And for this to work, uh, it's really important to have a clear owner of a decision. So usually, let's say when there are design decision, product decision, uh, where should we test the game, etc. It's important that the person who's the owner is identified as the clear owner. So no one here has the impression that they should be making the decision and they understand that there's an owner, but the owner is responsible of making sure to collect all the feedback that are critical to make the best decision. So that's also part of our, the responsibility we make for people in our team, whether you're responsible for design, UX design or product, art. Uh, I would say as a lead, no decision goes forward without a discussion with some sort of stakeholders. And what I mean by that, not stakeholders by power, but uh, by craft where we have different uh, point of view. And let's say we make a design decision. We will have, of course, product manager, all the designers, sometimes a producer as well, and sometimes we are lead, depending on what we need, the different point of view. And then we uh, converge at the end of this discussion towards a decision. But sometimes the owner so of a meeting will end up with a lot of conflicting feedback, but that's their work to filter that, what's their goal, what are they trying to achieve and make a decision based on the feedback they received. But, uh, and we commit as a team, we express a point of view, but we are not the decision maker on this. And we trust that the person will make the best decision with all the feedback they receive and they are in a better place with all the data point they have to make this decision. So sometimes I have my tech lead, art lead, they make decision where I'm not fully convinced, but I haven't spent the time they have spent to actually look into this decision that I trust the decision they will make, even if from my point of view, I would disagree. And that's also the commitment with, uh, you know, diverging uh, decisions. Mm. Joachim? Yeah. yeah, I think like, I want to talk about a few things that I believe sort of lead to this consensus and maybe like even the, the status quo kind of like being unquestioned or unchangeable. I think the first rule to get out of this kind of like situation is that you never should be 
sugarcoating things. Like, I think that sugarcoating activity of, you know, saying everything's fine, uh, like, or sort of like, you know, moving the viewpoint to something else when there are actual problems. So those problems can come up biting you later if you're not honest and you're not talking about the things that are challenging. Uh, I, I would even say like it's better to default to this pessimism regarding projects versus like saying that everything is fine or sugarcoating. Uh, but like, of course, you should celebrate the wins and create this feeling that the team prevailed from something that was tough and challenging and and show that positive positive things are also happening. Uh, and the second thing is that like listening, I think is a a superpower like when we're doing kind of like looking at the the five dysfunctions and thinking about the conflict that's something that um like you're breaking the consensus through conflict but you also want to be listening because people will want to speak and say something and you want to hear those reasonings for what they're saying so i, I think like having having more of a, a lean towards the, things are challenging uh I want to hear what you guys are thinking kind of like this this area will lead less to consensus than what it otherwise would yeah this is this is the point where well, sophie was i think you mentioned this, this thing of facilitation before and and even like how you described your own process uh you know a couple of things like listening super important but that facilitation is again crucial in this part uh because at the end of the day, you have to make sure that that people who are quiet get to say what they what they truly say. So that's where the facilitation comes in. When you point out to people like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, what do you really think about this? And and having everything in the open is crucial because I know a lot of companies uh, where I've been, uh, the conflict has hasn't been open, and the conflict has always happened behind the surface. So it's it's if you're connected, there all the conflict happens. Like you get to one on one when two people talk together or three people talk together and they make the decision, they have the conflict and they resolve everything. And then in the, in the official meeting, I think people are just in their swim lines. They can be on their phones because everything has been decided outside of it or will be decided outside of it. So, so kind of taking ownership of, of the conflict situation uh, and, and, um, and being ready to, to be, to make the decisions to being, being, being ready to understand that you will not see conflict, you will not see consensus in the end. Most likely somebody will not agree, but make sure that the, the people who don't agree get to say things. And in the end you say, hey, you know what? I carry the ownership of this. So I will make the decisions according to that. If it's wrong, it's on me. And I appreciate everybody who, who raised their points. Yeah. No, all right. Yeah. Point number five, great teams have peer-to-peer -peer accountability. So the key points here was that the hardest thing is to point out that a peer is performing below expectations or inappropriately. It's hard because you are essentially elevating yourself above your peer and kind of sticking your nose in their business. But if you don't do it, everybody else feels less accountable. Then you start missing the deadlines, the mediocre results follow, there's going to be poor performance and so forth and so forth. And um, if you also don't do it, the leader of the team, so let's say you have a leads team and a CEO or whatever you have it, or you know, craft leads and a game lead, uh, the leader becomes the sole source of discipline. So 
Sophie, like for example, Sophie, in the case of Sophie, um, as a studio lead, you'd be the one who's who's distributing punishment there because people are not, you know, considering themselves. Um, they, they're not watching a, a, <laughs> of each other. They're just expecting the leader to do all the discipline work. And, um, and the book points out, which is actually true, that the peer pressure, as we know for any, any game, any RPG game or strategy game, <laughs> the peer pressure is by far most efficient and effective mean of maintaining high standards of performance. Every, if you're in any competitive clan, let me know if this sentence is not true. <laughs> like you, you have to wake up in the middle of night to deliver your, your, your share of loot. So question, uh, how have you instilled this peer-to-peer accountability in your teams? Um, let's start with Joachim. Uh, I think like, one of the, the ways that I've seen it work really well is that you show example. Um, if, if, you, if you sort of like create an environment where that uh, somebody's saying, hey, you got to do better here, or I don't think you're doing well enough in this area, sort of like, like just, you know, on the hallway, grabbing somebody, or like, I, I think it, it, it creates that point that you start to show that you care about people versus like you're nagging on their performance. Uh, like it needs to come from the heart as well. I, I think here's, here's a good place again that uh, like, formal processes and training is going to really matter and it's going to help and like this is like it's so hard for these things to organically just surface because like otherwise like if you don't have it in the culture to actually like do this kind of peer-to-peer uh showing of like what is going on with the other person it's going to come out as you being a jerk uh, and you don't really want to do that either so it's like you've you've together decided that this is how we're going to be operating uh it's going to be hard but it it will show to the team that you know things can actually like improve when you're handling things in a way that is effective and it's it's clear that you can push people and also get this feeling that you're showing accountability Mm. sophie yeah, so I, I like to think of um, when to create peer-to-peer accountability as a lead, actually, you get uh, more of it by stepping away, actually. So what you mentioned, like when you are so um, predominant, like in all the decision in caring, like, oh, my God, we are late or we have to fix this. So you are always the one shouting. I I, I have been that person like, like for a long time and still like have these uh, uh, triggers, you know. But I realized actually uh, over time that by creating a, a big sense of ownership in the team, like everyone really cares because they can actually have an influence on the result. So they know why they're here. So it, it's so important to come back again, like to the mission, like they care about the mission. They care about being here in this team. They care about, they can have an influence. So when they feel actually uh, they have ownership on what they do and you step away. So for example, I don't know, we have a live crash. <laughs> These days, I'm not even the one pointing out, uh, it's the producer, she will. And then the whole things will trigger, like a lead, a tech leader will jump on it. They will start to discuss. 
And if I see nothing happening, of course, I will say something. But now I try to just stay silent and do nothing. And this is how accountability, peer-to-peer -peer accountability start to form. They see uh, how much power and influence they can have without my input. And I shouldn't be, my goal in the end is just to be out of this whole loop of operations uh, ultimately. So uh, that has helped a lot. And uh, I would say part of our values as well, because uh, I hired a team that has really this growth mindset that Joachim mentioned, we are all very passionate on learning. And for these reasons, it will always come from a good place and good intent when we give feedback to each other how to improve the process because we care, we want to make our work better, and we care of improving each other because we are all here sharing this growth mindset. Mm. And I can tell you the experience when we had people with not this growth mindset, so very defensive on getting feedback, um, wanted to get a promotion but not really doing, you know, uh, doing the work. It was very difficult for these people to stay in the team because everything was an attack. It made them very feel very insecure and comfortable. So for this culture to work as well, everybody needs to share the same values again of like driving for progress uh, and uh, growing as together as a team and caring, you know? So you have a lot of responsibility as an individual mm -hmm. and it's not for everyone. Yeah, I love what you said, because you said like, now that you've hired all these people, you're kind of like above and trying to not to do anything. And I've like, I was just talking to my wife about the same thing. I was like, I'm a CEO. And I'm like, like, I'm looking at our like Kanbanized board. I'm like, I don't have tasks. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I feel useless. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I know that I can't be doing it because then when I am doing something, it just, it's, um, it's like, you're, I don't know. It's just, it, it interferes more with the work then it actually helps oftentimes when you're trying to do, to be on the ground level, I guess that's what I've noticed. But, um, but I do have to say like, this is, this is the point uh, that, that came out. Uh, so this, this point of, of peer-to-peer -peer accountability, this is actually when I was having my one-on-one, which I have bi-weekly with Joachim. Uh, and I was asking him for advice on like, Hey, how do I run an effective leads meeting? Cause I was like having my leads meeting. I was like, I don't feel this. Like, this is not like, this is not, this is more me, uh, distributing discipline, <laughs> you know, like, like giving commands and stuff like it's just not working. And then he gave me, um, he gave me a little schooling from this same uh, author from another book. Apparently this author had written 15 books. <laughs> I didn't know that. And he was like, Hey, just use this model. And we walk through it. And I started doing this model and asked the team, like, how do you guys like that? They're like, this is excellent. Like instilled conflict and kind of facilitate, I was able to take a step back and start facilitating and like, hey, what are the priorities? Kind of like finding out these things by just guiding the conversation and and um, and really, you know, making sure that that people voice out, everybody gives their opinion and so forth. So so that kind of led to this because I'm like, oh, books work. This is really good. Like, what else can I can I find? <laughs> so so really yes, um, yeah. This is this is um this is a, a powerful one. So. Let's move on then to the um, to the next point, and that is point six, and that is effective teams focus on collective results rather than individual goals. So the key points here were that the shared goals must take precedence over individual ones. In poor teams, individual focus on on own career. Then, when the progress stagnates, uh, team players start leaving as they see that the team is not a good team, and then the situation is just getting the worse. And in the book. Uh, they set out actually, so they work, work work as a leads team, and they set 
a common goal for everybody. And of course, they're the CTOs and the sales and everybody has kind of like a different type of goals, lofty, this, this and that. And in the end, they, they come out with the goals like to be really successful, we need to get 18 new customers. So this is like a, a tech company. And everybody unites behind it and pushes across the lines of responsibilities to achieve this very, very tangible, very clear goal that is achieved by the team as a whole and not by a single individual. And through, through that, they're able to, to prioritize. And of course, I mean, Supercell is probably one of the, one of the most famous in this one where they have their uh, company team individual approach. Uh, how they how they um, how they run run their studio, and that is kind of like based on this same thesis. Um, so, so um, yeah, Sophie, what do you what do you think about this? I think for um, indeed uh, when you are pushing for uh, well, when you are not clear actually about your goals, then individual goals will actually take priority in the collective goals. So I think as a as a leader, your role is really to set clearly the targets and the how is really up to the team in the end but targets like what is like the big dream like audacious goal and that's kind of a uh, a bit of a loose goal like the dream that's one thing but really what are the steps to get closer to this dream is really for a leader to define very clearly short-term goals mid-term goals specificity so instead of saying we are building a top 10 grossing game, which basically the goal of every company uh, when any I join, it's, it's the same. It's just, you know, it's like the same. Um, it's not very helpful for a team actually to uh, execute on it. So I'd rather go with let's test this in X time or uh, that's the early metrics we look for or let's uh, things we have influence on. So it's really important to set clear goals so then the team can rally around it. And um, also to remind why we're here. So, of course, everybody will always have the individual goals, like they have personal aspiration, they, you know, they want to move a career ladder and everything, all of that is fine. Um, but also remember why they're here, what is the mission. And that's mm -hmm. what also creates the collectivity. So there's the dream that you share, and there's also like the work, more uh, tactical work, uh, lay out the goals by uh, month like i like a month window because then it's like time specific and not like quarter which start to be a bit too big um and then everyone is focusing on their or sprint you know this sprint needs to be delivered and uh what is the measure of success here etc like we don't want to have a crash rate of etc metrics etc so just being specific yeah i think the those teams discussions around what is important right now and in you know in the long term it's helpful for for the leader to to have a certain role there i think like miska talking about like not having any task on the kanban i think like your your role is is sort of like a a translator of you know translating the purpose of the the studio the company the team uh, into what the individual could be doing next like somebody could be asking you where do you need me in the short term to yeah. contribute to our common goal so you, you can actually like answer those kind of questions and also push people there so i think that's a, a big role in like creating creating results as a leader um so when you know the game you're making or when you're still if, if you're still in the ideation phase even like the team should discuss first what is the end result they're going after? 
And do they have the systems in place to get there? And then, like, do they have the the right people on the bus, like Jim Collins would say? Like, the, and then, then the the leader can actually be there, the supportive person to actually like get those collective results to happen. Mm, yeah, I, I I agree with you guys, and especially what Sophie mentioned with the important milestones. Uh, I I use a lot of that. Just you know, talk about the um, why this is important. Uh, talk about the uh, the reward, like what happens if we achieve, what is the loot, you know, like wh- why have we set this? Because usually when you set a certain type of targets, people start second guessing. I was like, so, you know, why? Or like, this is unrealistic. And like, why would you put this instead of that? And it's really important to have that discussion and, and explain like, you know, reaching this is important because the reward is big when you reach this point. And, um, and what I like about, you know, and this is actually learning from, from big studios and especially like, you know, the American studios, they, over, they always over communicated things. And I think that was a good thing because you, you, you constantly emphasize the same thing in reoccurring meetings. And this is something that, for example, in Finnish studios, I've, I've noticed that, that the communication is always, that has traditionally been very poor because they find like culturally they find conversation unimportant like it's more important to do things than to talk about things <laughs> but as the organization grows it's it's very important to keep on emphasizing like where we're heading where we are and if you feel that you've said this five times ten times it doesn't matter people you know it doesn't people forget they just need to be reminded it's like a shower you know <laughs> it's like yeah exactly <laughs> So you need to shower yeah. them with goals. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. There was uh, some research done that you need to at least seven times say the same thing before yeah. people really remember it. Uh, so. Even with every milestone, just discussing, hey, this is where we're going to go with this milestone. And this is how the milestone goes in the big project. Or even when you start like, hey, here's our company mission. You know, we don't talk or company values or whatever it is. Like, just keep on emphasizing. It's not enough that you do it once and put it in Google Drive and people can go and read it. Like, come on. So, so this is actually something that the Americans do really well. They're really good communicators. Um, anyway, so point number seven, and this is the last point. Great teams spend a lot of time together, which results in the savings of a lot of time. So you meet regularly, you develop trust. You resolve conflicts face to face, and uh, you know, and and the challenge is is having like effective meetings, and and we worked, we all worked in the companies where the meetings take most of the time and are inefficient, and and the kind of like the big question mark here is like how to have efficient meetings because usually like when I go from big to small. I'm always first thing saying like, okay, no more bullshit meetings, like no meetings until noon, no this, no that. But what I'm really trying to fix is the inefficient meetings and how to, how to, how to extract most value because meetings per se are not useless. Like a lot of good things come out of meetings if they're good meetings, so how to make sure that, that the, that the meetings are efficient and good. So um, Sophie, how do you do this? Uh, so first change we did as well, especially after the COVID, now is like it just starts to creep in with many meetings. I have also meetings like inside the organization. So when I start to see my day full of meetings, like this is not going in the right direction. Um, so something I ask, whoever asks a meeting from me, not in the team, but uh, over uh, outside of the studio, 30 minutes. I have 30 minutes because then it forces actually to get really down to the discussion. So usually meetings by default are set one hour. And I find it actually quite effective in 30 minutes 
when you know you just have a time, you catch up five minutes, uh -huh, and then you move on to the importance of the topic. So trying the 30 minute rule is one thing. And then as a rule, we extend it 30 more minutes if we really didn't manage to do so. I would avoid back-to-back -back meeting because you cannot have that, right? And uh, I would say as a general rule, it's important to have a clear goal of a meeting. Are you here just to catch up? So casual conversation with no outcome specific, or are you here to make a decision? In that case, it's better to be prepared. What do you need your uh, participants to be aware of to be able to come to the meeting to make a decision? Whatever materials they should have or what's the agenda? So I like as well preparation for a meeting to be effective when you have to agree or align on something important. So in that case, it would be one hour. Mm. And this is all part of the team handbook. So the team is practicing it and I am practicing it and I reject meetings that you know, are inefficient in the team. So they understand as well that they have to apply this for themselves. Yeah, I, I think like maybe like going back into like what Misko was talking about just a few minutes ago about this format that I came up with one of Lencioni's book. It's the advantage that has this sort of like a, a pretty interesting format where you're you're basically involving everybody from the head and the heart into these meetings by not sort of like you know creating like this is this is the the agenda that we're going to be talking about this is like what we need to go through in this meeting but rather like like an effective meeting like this is just a format that i i've felt that really could work is we have a a real-time agenda that is built at the beginning of the meeting where you bring up hey what are the priorities that we need to talk about uh everybody around the room kind of voices their two to three different priorities and then there's a again a healthy discussion maybe conflict about like what are actually like the real priorities versus the ones that people don't really agree upon. And then the leader can then pick up the agenda from, from those pieces that were really good stated that these are big priorities. And again, it goes into safe environment, the healthy conflict, all those layers there where people feel that they're safe to actually talk about the things that they feel are priorities. So if you spend 10, 10 minutes at the beginning of the meeting to build this agenda, I think it's, just makes these meetings feel like work, like it's actual work being done versus a, you know, reporting session. So yeah. I, I really love this format. So it's in the advantage book. So I can I can explain how how that meeting worked for for us. So based on Joachim's, um, based on based on the other formula they gave us, I actually modified a little bit. So uh, basically, the leads meeting happens every every Monday. You know. We just go through like priorities for the week. And with this real time thing is what I do is I send in the, in the morning, I send um, an Excel, well, uh, Google uh, slot sheets agenda. And I said like, hey, put your three, two to three things that are important for you in this week. And people start putting it in and then we start voting. And you have only between one to three points that you can give. So you kind of underline your own things. Like what is number one, number two, number three, or number two, number one and two and two and so forth. And you give points and then you see other people putting in stuff in, and then you put in points there as well. Like if you consider that that is number one, that that's, that's actually super important. You put in one, or if you think it's like relatively important too. And if you think it's, you know, uh, three and what happens is then we just 
put them in the priority order. So the, the, the topics that receive the less points, we'll discuss those in the leads meeting. And usually there's about two to three of those. And we discuss them and we agree that these are the priorities for this week. And through that, it's easy to prioritize people's time uh, during the week. So for example, hiring becomes usually like for a specific person becomes really important. And, and that way we know that even if you might be working on something, you know, important for you, you understand that this hiring process for this particular person, it, for this particular uh, task is quite, is like priority for this week. So you have to kind of, you know, go away from whatever it is and prioritize this over others instead of saying like, well, I'll interview in the next week and so forth. Like, no, we agreed as a company and as a leads team that this is actually number one. So we need you to prioritize hiring for this position rather than, than doing something that you considered more important uh, for now. So the hiring was just an example, but it just clarifies like, like how, how it works and, and it works really well, but we use numbers because it's easier in the, in the, in the instruction Joachim that you gave, it was color coding. And I don't know how to, how to, how to it became, I looked at it. I was like, this looks like bullshit because it just gives different colors. <laughs> and I was like, let's just put in numbers. And then it just automatically turns like the most important things have less points and they go up on the list. So <laughs> Yeah, I think Lencioni even had a different model than how I explained it to you. But okay. like, I think we're working on a really good, good yeah, but, like kind of lead here. <laughs> Anyways, but but this is an example as well as the Sophie your ones where where it's like five minutes and you continue or not and just space out the meetings and through that kind of like adding more and more, uh, like like making sure that the meetings have value and making sure that um that you're not wasting time. I think that's uh, that's crucial. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we did it. I think we reviewed our first book. I, I really recommend, I think we all recommend that, that people go and listen to this book or read it. It's tiny. It is super short. I, I personally like listening to them. And I think uh, people who are listening to this podcast like listening to books as well. So, so uh, Audible, we don't have any kind of promo codes. We should probably get some. And I, <laughs> and I wanted to, I uh, wanted to end up with like a couple of like unrefutable actionable ideas from the book. Uh, number one was lead by example. And the book wrote, like, if you are a team leader and you wish to build trust by encouraging others to share their vulnerabilities, you must first do so yourself. One good way to do this is to share some personal stories about yourself and then ask others to do the same. Um, the second part was setting clear goals and following them. So whenever you find yourself in a team, whether leading it or just participating, insist on setting public goals and quality standards. Also demand they be followed with simple and regular progress reviews. This will help keep everyone focused on team goals and also encourage accountability. And don't forget, shared goals demand shared rewards like a team event. So thank you so much for, for, uh, for joining me on this um, journey of reading books. <laughs> And um, and I uh, hope everybody enjoyed listening. And thank you for my co-hosts. And um, we'll see you in a we'll see you in a month. Thanks, Miska. Thank see ya. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye.